My name is Peter Ward, and welcome to the Solutions to Go podcast, your source for information on investing, insurance, banking, tax planning, and healthy living. If you'd like to know more about anything discussed on this podcast, please visit mysolutionsonline.ca, where you'll find a wide variety of articles and videos. This episode was recorded back in September, so there may be a few references to the coming year, which is 2023. As always, it was great to chat with our co-chief investment strategists, Kevin Hedlund and Makan Nia. I wanted to talk about the world in this episode. As Kevin will mention, the Canadian stock market is heavily weighted toward just three sectors, financials, materials, and energy. And as proud Canadians, we have a strong home bias. In fact, many estimates suggest that we hold about 60% of our assets in Canada. With such a narrow market, this may leave our portfolios vulnerable to market shocks that may not affect a more broad-based economy like the US or globally. In this episode, I'll talk to Kevin and Makan about the outlook for different regions of the world, the good, the bad, and the unknowns. Let's jump right in. Today, I wanna talk about different sectors across the world. I wanna talk about Canada, the United States, Europe, and Asia. We can also touch on emerging markets, but let's start in Canada. Given that we as Canadians have a strong home bias, do you think that maybe we need to consider moving further outside of Canada and looking at international markets or the United States as a way of diversifying our portfolios? So when we look at Canada, you know, one of the things and probably one of the, the, the downfalls is as Canadian investors, we tend to have a natural home country bias. And we have actually one of the worst home country biases um, around the world. When you look at the global stock market, Canada represents roughly 3% of the global stock market. Yet in our portfolios, um, it's much higher. Uh, and so we probably should take a look at Canada and say maybe we're overweight relative to the opportunity set that exists globally. Uh, however, within Canada, as you said, oil prices elevated. Uh, you know, it, it drives our energy sector a little bit higher. And when we look at interest rates moving higher, it's driven our financials a little bit higher. And within Canada, it's not a very diversified index. So we're kind of beholden to where those two sectors go, how the financials do and how energy does tends to lead where the Canadian stock market goes. So it's a very, um, very small market compared to somewhere like the U.S. Um, it's, it's very small. You know, again, when I first started in the industry, 20 odd years ago, I'm going to age myself, but 20 odd years ago, um, it used to be called the TSC 300. All right. And I think now it's the TSX 242, um, meaning that we've lost, you know, better part of 60 companies through mergers and acquisitions. So, and the, the diversification amongst the different sectors, as I said earlier, is much smaller. The bigger sectors are become bigger and bigger relative to the other sectors. And, and that tends to be, make a very inefficient market. When you look at performance, and we're recording this beginning of September, it's been a tough year for global markets in general, but Canada has fared relatively better than the rest of the world. So as of the time of recording on September 7th, the TSX is down roughly, I'm going to use round numbers here, 10% versus the broad US stock market, which is down 17%. And a lot of that relative outperformance can be tied to, as Kevin alluded to, energy. So energy prices saw close to a 90% rally from early December to mid, mid-June mid of this year. 
but has since fallen 30%, which has also led to that outperformance of the TSX versus the S&P, the outperformance has narrowed. Now, as we look forward in an environment where we think the global economy continues to slow, demand for energy will decline as a result. And there's still some uh, factors that will support oil prices from a supply perspective, i.e. not enough investment. But we think the lack of or the slowing demand will, will trump that. So when we look forward, the outperformance we've seen from the TSX versus other indices, we think is unlikely to continue in this type of global economy. Let's talk about the U.S. market. Give me the 30,000 foot view first. Why it's important to look outside of Canada and why the U.S. may be an attractive place to look. From a broad perspective, um, when we look at the U.S. as one of the most, you know, deep, broadest markets out there, of the best companies in the world tend to uh, list uh, on the broad U.S. equity market exchange um, for access to capital. That tends to be a fairly attractive place to invest over time. Um, there's a lot of different types of companies to invest in, which gives us a bit more depth than breadth. So I think from that perspective, uh, the U.S. Uh, remains very attractive. It has its ups and downs over time, but over the longer term, um, it remains one of the best, most predictable long-term uh, areas to invest in. I wonder if we can also touch on investing while the markets are down. It's something that investors struggle with, but I really like the way you frame it, Makan. I always ask myself, especially during corrections, and Kevin and I have yet to find something that mimics this behavior. Investing in markets or investing in businesses, it's kind of goes against it, what humans typically do when purchasing something. And what I mean by that is, if I told you, Peter, let's say there's a car, a house, an iPhone, whatever it is that you consume was 20% cheaper today than what it was at the beginning of the year, you would go out and buy it. You wouldn't wait for it to be 25% cheaper or 30% cheaper because you would fear that, you know what, you, that discount might not come. But when it comes to markets, investors have that exact opposite mentality. And let's just say we're down 20. So that's saying essentially is those very quality businesses in the broad U.S. stock market are trading at a 20% discount to what they were at the beginning of the year. But yet investors are very not quick to react to that and buy those quality businesses. So our outlook for U.S. equities is positive, uh, especially when you factor in valuations and the discount, discounts that you're buying companies today and typically the odds are in your favor as a medium to long-term investor that's great i like that i like that outlook um yeah it it, it feels like you know some, they're on sale but no one's buying it's it's kind of interesting um so let's pivot and <laughs> pivot that's funny can we uh can we talk about the fed um do you think they're close <laughs> the fed I, I, I worked that in there um are they close to being done this rate hiking cycle and what does it mean for the incredibly strong dollar right now? And more importantly, for everyday Canadians that are hoping to cross the border uh, and do some, uh, do some shopping. From our perspective, the Fed is getting closer to the end. Uh, you know, they're, they've been fairly aggressive. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, the expectations are starting to narrow, meaning the difference between what the market expects and what the Federal Reserve is doing is starting to be much closer. Um, the, the market tends to appreciate that clarity and that certainty. Recently at the Jackson Hole uh, Summit, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell had a speech. Um, the equity market took it as much more hawkish than expected, but not necessarily more hawkish than their tone was already. I think the market had just expected that it would be less hawkish. 
So when the Federal Reserve talks about being aggressive, they are just talking about maintaining their policy rate above neutral. And if you call that neutral rate, call it 2.5%. So if they raise their rates to 3.5%, that is roughly you know 30% higher than their uh, neutral rate. So that is an aggressive posture, and they'll probably remain that way until inflation gets down towards their target of 2%. Um, that, that, again, that tends to be positive. It doesn't mean they're raising rates to 4 5 6%. It just means that they're likely going to maintain this more hawkish tone or hawkish stance longer than was first expected. It's not necessarily negative. It just changes a little bit on expectations, which is, is just something we're, we're digesting now um, as, as, a, as a broad market. Yeah, and to try to use a sport analogy, let's use baseball. If you look at a typical <laughs> game, it's nine innings. I think Kevin and I would say we're probably in the sixth, seventh inning. So we've experienced a, a majority of the rate increases. Doesn't mean that there's not a couple more ahead over the next couple of months, but the majority of that is uh, we've, we've already experienced and the expectations, as Kevin said, uh, are becoming more aligned. So there's less likelihood of there being a surprise to the, ne- to the downside from these levels compared to what we may have experienced early on in the year. NP, you also mentioned the Canadian dollar there, and, and you know it's probably surprising to many investors that it's so low, especially uh, early on this year with the big jump in oil prices, and the Canadian dollar tends to be a petroloony or, or fall the price of oil. Uh, and in this case, it didn't, right? It actually fell a little bit relative to the U.S. dollar. In this case, it wasn't necessarily the fact that the Canadian dollar was weaker. It was just the fact that volatility had increased so much, and the U.S. dollar is seen as that flight to quality. And the flight to safety. So naturally, during periods of uncertainty, periods of volatility, uh, global investors migrate to U.S. dollar assets, which drives the U.S. dollar up against most of its global peers, including the Canadian dollar. So that's one of the reasons why the Canadian dollar has fallen recently. Um, we would expect as markets start to normalize here, uh, perhaps as we get through the risk of recession in early next year, uh, the balance of risks from where the Canadian dollar is today is really skewed to the upside. I mean, we wouldn't be surprised to see the Canadian dollar rally um, without material moves in oil prices from where they are today either, uh, back towards 81 to 83 cents uh, relative to the U.S. dollar for the next uh, call it 12 months or so. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting because you notice it, it it almost felt like it was a weak dollar, but then you see, you know, the U.S. dollar appreciating versus the pound and the euro. I mean, I think they hit parity at one point, right? So um, it, it just seems like a really strong U.S. dollar that's that's kind of driving that from the from what I assume is the Fed hikes. I think for those travelers, Pete, uh, they should think about changing their vacation from going to the states to Europe because when you look at the CAD Euro, we're at levels we haven't seen in decades. So for okay. those for those value buyers, or as my wife I call them, value buyers or fiscally responsible. My wife calls me cheap. Uh, Europe might be a better destination than U.S. over the next couple of months from a currency perspective. Heard it here first, folks. Visit Europe. <laughs> Now's the time. <laughs> Speaking of Europe, let's talk about Europe. Um, obviously, a big macro event there with Russia-Ukraine war, and it caused natural gas to skyrocket. Is there anything we can say about Europe that may be intriguing? I mean, it, all I'm seeing is the the headlines, the fallout from the soaring energy costs. My grandparents calling me in England, telling me that they can't believe it. It's it's out of control. Um, but that's what seems to be stealing headlines. But is, is there anything that investors should consider about Europe or is it, is it kind of a no-go zone right now? That's a, t- that's a, that's a, that's a, good, a loaded question. 
it seems like doom and gloom, right? So I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just asking. Like there's there's always opportunities in any given market. I think we got to probably look a little further along the horizon. Um, there's a lot of headwinds being faced right now with the proximity to the invasion of Ukraine, soaring energy prices. So there's always little nuance and little factors amongst headlines, uh, but still there's always opportunities. Again, you just perhaps have to um, hold a little longer to realize the upside opportunity. And in the near term, there's still a lot of uncertainties and headwinds that the European area still faces. Yeah, and Kevin touched to them. In the short term, there's there's going to be more volatility. You talk to energy prices, Pete. Look at natural gas prices. They A couple of weeks ago, they went up 20% in one day. I think they've doubled in a month. That's going to pose challenges for businesses. I wouldn't be surprised or we wouldn't be surprised if there's more negative headlines. There's more challenges to economic uh, activity. But typically, as you said, is when no one wants to touch an investment, those are typically good medium to long-term investments. So if you're investing in Europe today, one could easily make the case for a three to five year perspective where uh, the return profile is likely going to be attractive. It's being able to stomach the short-term volatility. So it really is investor specific and how they typically react to negative news. So longer term, there may be some opportunities in Europe. I think this links back to the very basics of investing. Certain economic conditions, although bad at the time, may create dislocations or opportunities for portfolio managers to pick up good quality companies that may have solid fundamentals but be struggling short term. Markon, maybe you can sum up that feeling for us investors. If you feel sick to your stomach to buy it, typically it's a good investment. Okay, so let's move on from Europe. Um, China's had some interesting policies surrounding COVID-19 that uh, maybe artificially shrunk demand for resources and consumer goods. Um, Giving the soaring demand from the rest of the world for raw materials and consumer goods, is that beneficial to the global economy? Um, Much the same way, and I read an article about this, that, you know, uh, China really helped out uh, in the aftermath of the the 2008, the great financial crisis, right? Uh, Some of their policies kind of work to to reinvigorate the global economy and and by kind of artificially shrinking the demand for these goods is that is that helping with the supply chain issues etc so they're in the near term there's challenges to that area but again i think you have to take asia very similar to europe from a longer term perspective there's still a lot of positive things from a big structural perspective for that part of the world but for outsized returns, you're going to have to be able to stomach outsized volatility. And that's always been the case for that part of the world. And it's likely going to be the case in the near term. Yeah, I think China is the, the biggest issue is they've been supplier um, to the world for quite some time in terms of, of goods. Um, and some of their uh, current challenges are impacting supply chain disruptions, right? And that's what we're seeing globally. Uh, it's also important to realize that uh, back, you, know, you said the financial crisis, you know, China was growing on a much larger uh, percentage base uh, back then, right? Um, and they've grown materially since then. So I don't think we look necessarily look at China as the uh, as saviors for global economic growth because they're not going to be dro- growing at double digits. They can't. Their, their economy is too large. Uh, but they're becoming more, over time, they'll become more stable as an economic uh, uh, contributor to global uh, economy. 
Um, and we're just facing these short-term challenges uh, that are existing through policy and a lot of short-term issues. But as Makan said, um, there's often a lot of opportunity in the short term for longer-term patient investors. And when Kevin and I look at that part of the world, it kind of exhibits the opposite uh, role in a client's portfolio than Canada. And what I mean by that, Canadian investors have an outsized investment in Canadian equities and bonds, uh, but they also have an underweight in that part of the world. Typical Canadian investors hold almost next to nothing in that for that part of the world. So there is an argument to be made. Like, do you go 30% emerging markets? No, but at these levels... And especially after what's been priced in, there can be an argument made for that medium to long-term investor to have either a 5 or 10% allocation to that part of the world because the broad-based long-term fundamentals are positive and there's some great companies as well in Asia. And very different in Asia, there's companies there that we just don't have here in Canada that actually diversifies your, uh, your holdings. And do you think that's just a case of we, we don't know what we don't know, so we're kind of scared of it is it something that investors should look at like um speaking to their advisor i would say about you know gaining exposure to that kind of that side of the world yeah i think you want to do it through the lens of active management now like in any index but specifically one in a more newer uh capital market is i want a manager that's going to be going through the financial statements of those companies and ripping it apart and as opposed to just buying the broad-based ETF or a broad-based uh, passive investment. So I think when it comes to that part of the world, you want to get it through the lens of an active manager because it is an element of that. We don't know what we don't know in the sense that it seems yeah. like it's all over there. But you know what? They're, for every Tim Hortons that we have here or Shoppers, they have one in China as well. And it's, it's hard for us to envision that, much easier for an active manager who talks to uh, really portfolio managers there who has boots on the grounds there that to find those opportunities. Yeah, I was just going to mention that it's it's good to have boots on the ground and, and some expertise from there. Um, so given all that uh, and, and what we talked about, how do you see the next few years uh, playing out? Are, are there some bright spots that we look for across the globe or is it is it Canada all the way or um, what what are you thinking for a, for a medium term outlook? Kev, you want to start and then I'll add on? Rather than pinpoint necessarily, you know, the return profile or try and guess or predict um, returns, we try and rank um, the opportunity. Um, and if we're looking at a, a, you know, the globe, as you said, and cut in four pieces, Canada, U.S., uh, international emerging markets, I think right now we would rank uh, U.S. first, Canada second, international emerging markets probably close to tie for three, third, just on the current environment and the short-term uncertainty. Uh, but over time, the key is to having well-diversified portfolios. As Makan said, there's companies that exist in other markets that don't exist in, in closer to home. And sometimes that, although we don't understand or, or, or we're less familiar with those uh, companies or those areas of the world, um, over time, a well-diversified portfolio can add a lot of value um, to, the, to the investors' returns. And Kev and I are quite optimistic for the return profile over the next couple of years. And really because there's a lot more, as, as much as it doesn't feel like it given market performance, there's a lot more certainty today than there was in the first couple of months of this year. And what I mean by that, there's more certainty around the path for interest rates by major central banks as they're 
there was a little bit of uncertainty at the beginning, not a little bit, a lot of uncertainty about it at the beginning of the year. There's a lot more certainty in terms of the path of inflation. We've peaked. We're likely trending lower earlier in the year. We didn't know at what levels we were going to peak. The war in Ukraine, although it's still ongoing, unfortunately, from a market perspective, there's more certainty on its impact on commodities, on well, more, mostly commodities, uh, whether it's energy or food today than what there was when the war first started on Feb 24th. In terms of COVID policies, there's more certainty today across the world in terms of how governments are going to react to reemergence of different strains. And we're much more certain today of what the next year will look like than what we did at the beginning of the year. And that puts a nice backdrop for market returns over the next couple of years. Oh, that's great. I know you said earlier that, uh, that markets hate uncertainty. So a little bit more certainty in the financial markets is always a good thing. So, okay, let's get to the, uh, the big question. And this one is, who do you really respect in the financial sphere? It can be a hedge fund guy, a central banker, an economist. Uh, who's, your, who's your financial hero? Mark Arnia. Nerd alert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you want to go first, Kev? Or I got to think, Kev, uh, Pete put, me on this, put us on the spot. You're going to Google some economists and... <laughs> You know what, Kev, like, I always speak very highly of Mark Carney. So Canadian, obviously, former Bank of Canada governor, very, very rare for a uh, non who then transitioned to be the governor of the Bank of England. It was the first time that a non, uh, how do you say it, non-English person was, uh, was their central banker. So it just speaks volumes of his his intellect, his ability to communicate. What I respect about him is he's able to take very complex ideas and simplify them for the mass audiences. He's transitioned out of that role after two very successful governor roles um, and now is really le not leading the charge, but one of the main figureheads of trying to integrate ESG into markets. And recognizing that you have to look at it from both lenses and they both impact each other. And I think that's the type of person that we need uh, to listen to. And maybe he becomes the next uh, front runner for the liberals. Uh, but I have a lot, massive amount of respect for him. And it's not just me. He's respected globally. So I guess he would be my financial hero. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of Mark Carney. Um, and I, I, I don't really have one you know, hero, I would say. I think it's important to look at a lot of those that have come before us um, and blaze the trail. Um, they all have, you know, nuances about their, their opinions and the way they express themselves and the way they've done the research uh, to, to help us understand a little more about the market. So I think it's important to, you know, take those and maybe it sounds like cop out, uh, but there's so many ones that have blazed a trail and you want to look at them all and, and, Kev, it doesn't sound like a cop out. It is a cop out. Give us a name. I said my name, and I'm sticking by it. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't have one. I, I, it's funny. I, I don't have a a hero in in the financial markets per se. Um, I honestly don't. Thanks for being a Debbie Downer, Kev. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sidestepping the question, Kev. That's <laughs> it's, it's what I do for a living, man. Sidestep things. <laughs> 
I think I think I have to say mine is probably Benjamin Graham. I, I've I've read the first half of his book, The Intelligent Investor, like fifteen times. It gets pretty heavy after that, but I, I think from you know, um, you, you know, like just his, uh, it, you know, looking at companies and and taking a deep dive in there and and sort of like the value style. Um, I, I just think that uh, I think he's a is a cool dude, and I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed his outlook. So uh, that for me, that's that's who it would be. I know that's probably a cop out because he's like one of the most famous economists ever. But that's how I feel. <laughs> no, you picked a name. That's all that matters. It's not a cop out. <laughs> yeah, Kevin. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, it was always great to have you both on the show. I hope you'll come back and and do another one when I find some more questions to ask you because uh, you all uh, both answered them so well. Um, and hopefully, we can we can bring a little bit of. Uh, understanding to uh to canadian listeners out there so uh thanks again for joining our pleasure pete thanks for having us yeah as always pete thanks for having us really appreciate it copyright manual life commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial legal or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management and are subject to change based on market or other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede KYC, know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.